You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached during the online worship service of Central United Methodist Church. We are located in Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to join us for our live worship experience through Facebook or Zoom every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Visit www.cumcballston.org for details. There you can also learn more about our congregation where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. The scripture for today is Luke 19, verses 1 through 10 the New Revised Standard Version. Jesus and Zacchaeus. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him. Because he was going to pass that way, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tricia. This is a wonderful story. It's a little man in a tree. He gets an invitation, a reverse invitation. Jesus invites Zacchaeus down because Jesus must be invited to Zacchaeus' home. And with this story, this little man is changed. And more than he, more than his life is changed. His whole household has changed. The people he gives back to are changed. Those in the future he won't be taking from are changed. And the people who witness this beautiful story, who are so upset at Jesus eating with sinners like a tax collector, they're changed too. Now, This story takes place in a very particular context. It takes place in a Roman world, and it takes place during a journey. Christ is on his way to Jerusalem. The Christ is on his way to be crucified. He's told that to his followers and disciples. They don't believe him. They believe that he will be announcing the new kingdom, the Messiah. And on his way, we hear this story. And the story sandwiched between his healing of a beggar outside the walls of Jericho. That's the blind beggar, Bartimaeus. And after he has this interaction with Zacchaeus, Jesus tells a parable about the ruler 
who demands that his slaves produce. Jesus is on his way to the crucifixion and he stops to save a sinner. And where this takes place in the Roman world, this is a world of oppression, a world of economic oppression. The Roman imperial economy was based on a very simple system. Rome gave a lot of self-government, a lot of autonomy to the localities that it ruled with two conditions. The first is allegiance to Rome. You wouldn't revolt. The second is you send your wealth to Rome. And as long as you kept the peace and sent the money, Rome would leave you alone. For the Jews of Judea, this was a system that brought together imperial tax collectors like our Zacchaeus. These were men who had the warrant to collect taxes and the warrant to call on the Roman army to help them do that. And by collect taxes, they decided how much you would pay because they in turn had to pay up the line. So they knew how much they had to move up the line so they would charge more and that was their profit. From that, they would pay those who worked for them. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Think of a pyramid scheme that worked where all the common people were at the bottom. Now on top of that, there was the temple cult. These were the priests who taxed the people. And these priests were appointed by Rome, even though they were in charge of the Jewish temple. So there was a temple tax, and you also paid when you went to the temple to give your sacrifices. Remember those money changers? That's what they were doing there. And the taxation and the tithing for the temple were both under the same authority of a Roman ruler, either a king who was placed there by Rome, Herod was, or Herod Antipas in the time of Jesus, or an imperial delegate like Pontius Pilate. So the Jews had the worst of both worlds, Herod and Pilate. As a result of this, estimates that between 75 and 85% of what you had would be taxed or tithed. And this meant that you would have to borrow money to pay your taxes. And borrowing led to indebtedness and to slavery. This is an extractive economy. It's what colonialism is. The powers take over, they take the wealth out, and they give nothing back. They extract economy. Richard Horsley puts it in his book, Covenant Economics, this way. Under the impact of pressures from multiple layers of rulers, both families and the village community began to disintegrate. This is at the time of Jesus. Families unable to feed themselves after rendering up tithes and taxes fell into debt, often to Herodian officials who controlled stores of food. With their debt spiraling out of control, the poor gradually lost control of their lands, presumably becoming tenants of the Herodian officers. So when you were in debt and couldn't pay the debt, you began to lose your land. When you've lost your land and became a tenant farmer and still became in debt, you began to lose your family. This was what becoming a slave could mean. Your family could be sold as slaves to pay the debts. 
This is why tax collectors were considered sinners. A tax collector, a Jewish tax collector, was living a lifestyle abhorred by God. Now, the burdens on the poor from tax collectors and a judicial system that imposed those taxes, it's one of the main themes we have in Scripture. The Psalms resound with prayers to be rescued from the unjust judges. And you wound up in front of a judge because you were in debt. One of the words of the Psalms are, you devour my people like bread. It's a dreadful picture of economic slavery. Psalm 10 is a good example. I'm going to recite Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked persecute the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of their heart. Those greedy for gain curse and renounce God. In the pride of their countenance, the wicked say, God will not seek it out. All their thoughts are, there is no God. Their ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of their sight. As for their foes, they scoff at them. They think in their heart, we shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, we shall not meet adversity. Their mouths are filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under their tongues are mischief and inequity. They sit in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, they murder the innocent. Their eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They lurk in secret like a lion in its covert. They lurk that they may seize the poor. They seize the poor and drag them off in their net. They stoop, they crouch, and the helpless fall by their might. They think in their heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Rise up, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why do the wicked renounce God and say in their hearts, you will not call us to account? But you do see. Indeed, you know trouble and grief that you may take it into your hands. The helpless commit themselves to you. You've been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoers. Seek out their wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nation shall perish from his land. O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed so that those from earth may strike terror no more. These are the words of despair of someone caught up in this economic vice. Under the law of Moses, you were to charge no interest. The lenders charged interest. Tax collectors would lend too because they had the money to do it. You would enslave no Jew under the laws of Moses or you'd rescue them from any Gentile slavery. And yet a tax collector would sell your family into slavery for the money that they could get. And the seven-year jubilee of forgiveness and return, the Mosaic law, they did not pay attention to that. The tax collectors violated all of these and with the strength of the inviting, invading state. They were sinners. And in many ways, the worst kind of sinners, for they were betraying their own people. Now, ranged against this extractive economy is God's economy. God's economy is one of distributive justice. It's an economy where, as Luke reports Mary saying, you fill the hungry with good and sent the rich away empty. 
Let's be clear. The extractive economy of Rome is alive and well today. It's just more sophisticated. We don't sell our children or ourselves into slavery to get out of debt. We no longer have a debtor's prison unless, of course, you're in prison in Florida and you have to pay for what it costs them to imprison you and you can't vote until you make good on those payments. Today we have what Catherine Tanner calls the new capitalism. Our basic capitalism is a zero-sum game of competition. You compete to get a good job. You compete in that job. You work, you get paid to consume. You then buy what you can and you then turn the wheels so that you can be paid so that you can consume and around and around it goes. But there is only so much to go around and you competed for schools and good jobs. It is an economy based on scarcity. And now we have an economy that's based not just on scarcity and competition, but on debt. The powers that be have figured it out that it's much more lucrative to keep people in debt than to produce goods. When you're in debt and at the same time are a well-trained consumer, you are the ideal worker. This is a different kind of slavery, but it's still slavery. And there's no real difference between the self-aggrandizement of a Michael Cohen and our tax collector Zacchaeus. Both operate from a sense of power. Both operate to get power. And note how much of our world is put into economic terms. In dealing with the pandemic, how often have you heard our sorrows and troubles equated to an economic impact? That people have to go back to work or indeed are forced to go back to work to make the money to pay the debts? in areas and conditions that are not safe. You've seen the economics dealing with the fires out west. You wind up getting information like how many, much timber was lost, what will be the economic impact when people have lost their homes, sometimes their lives. And you see that in economic terms on spending for our elections. Hundreds of millions of dollars spent for what? for publicity, to get elected. Hmm. God's economy is different. It's an economy of more, not less. It's an economy of relating to others and not to things. I, I first saw this uh, when I was working for the government. Uh, saw this in a way that really became uh, personal to me or came home to me. I had been sent on a USAID mission to Kyrgyzstan with three other people. Uh, I was from the federal government and the other three were from the private sector. Um, and we were involved in demonstrating to the Kyrgyz people uh, some economic, um, uh, economic factors for energy. While we were there, we took a tour of one of the local museums and it had a gift shop. And one of the guys I was with was looking around and he saw these earrings and he, he said, you know, I, you know, I really think I want to buy those for my wife, but I don't know. They're a little expensive. I, I don't know. So he went around thinking and thinking. Finally, he decided to buy them. And he went in to buy them. right. 
God's economy is different. God's economy is an economy of more, not less. It's an economy of relating to others and not to things. I really became aware of this in a very real way um, some years ago when I was on a government trip to Kyrgyzstan. I was there with three other uh, people. We were there to uh, instruct the Kyrgyz people in, in some types of economic rate regulation. And I represented the U.S. government, and the other three were from the private sector. One day we were in one of the museums they have there that had a um, section where it would sell things, uh, uh, a store. And one of the men I was with uh, looked at these pair of earrings and said, I think I want to buy them for my wife, but they're kind of, exp I don't know. I mean, kept going back and forth, back and forth. And he went off. He came back and decided, I'm going to buy them. I said, great. He went up to the counter. I'm sorry, sir, they've been sold. Now, there were only the four of us in that museum store and the clerk behind the counter. And he was totally stunned, as was I. And one of the other guys came up and said, I bought them. Do you want to buy them from me? And of course, at a higher price. You see, this fellow had heard that, that the other gentleman wanted to buy them. And he bought them ahead of time so that he could sell them at a profit. The man who wanted to buy the earrings, I think, did the right thing. He just said, no, I don't want them. But I was stunned. Here was a fellow who, we'd been together for like a week. We'd gotten to know each other. We'd eaten together. Um, we had done lectures together. We'd learned about each other, so I thought. And yet this man, for money, was willing to just put all that away. Walter Brueggemann talks about the Bible's view of these sort of attitudes, of treating for things and not people. He does it in his book called Tenacious Solidarity. The Bible, this is Walter Brueggemann, the Bible lives among various extraction systems. It's, in its main contention, Scripture does more than live amid them. It responds to them in various forms of resistance. It refuses to accept the fiction that maintains them. Beyond that, it offers daring proposals for an alternative economy. What sort of things is Walter talking about? The economy of making bricks because you're a slave and God's daring way of defeating Pharaoh and freeing his people. The economy of treating others as servants and Moses' law that says no. In the Ten Commandments, you treat others as yourself. And Jesus Christ, in how to treat others in God's economy. Those proposals boil down into two basic rules. Share what you have and make restitution for what you've taken. In, in, in other words, find out who's rich Find out who's poor and then give it back to the poor. And when that happens, the word of the psalmist will come true. From Psalm 85. When that happens, steadfast love and faithfulness will be met. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other.
Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and will make a path for his steps. That's what today's scripture is about. In its own way, this story of Zacchaeus is as much a miracle story as God through Jesus healing the blind Bartimaeus that happens just before. Zacchaeus' life is totally changed, totally turned around. He now follows the law as a true son of Abraham. He ties faithfully and he returns fourfold what was stolen. And by the way, that fourfold, that's right out of Exodus chapter 22. If you have stolen something, you make reparation four times. This story in Luke begs to be compared with what happens to other rich people in Luke. Luke talks about the rich fool. Remember, the fellow who wants to build extra barns and goes to bed that night to find out that, no, he's called before the throne of God. The dishonest manager who cheats people. How about the rich man and Lazarus? And just before we hear Zacchaeus and the blind Bartimaeus, there's the story of that wealthy young man who wants to follow Jesus, but not so much. Zacchaeus is turned around and is changed because of one thing. He accepted Jesus' invitation to hurry and come down. Zacchaeus was curious and climbed a tree to see better, fell into Jesus' sight, and hurried to come down. And notice the wording that Jesus used. For I must stay at your house today. Jesus is the Savior. It's what he does. And Zacchaeus could see and choose and follow. How are we changed? The fundamental question we have, whether we're Christians or not, the fundamental question we have in this society is who will we serve? Do we focus our energies on the imperial, on the imperial civilization, or on the family of humankind? Where is our covenant? Where does our heart truly lie? John Wesley knew where it should lie, where Scripture points. He was out to change the economics of the public order. Remember his saying, earn all you can, okay. save all you can, but that third part, give all you can. And not by faith alone do we act, but John Wesley. Faith working by love. That is, do you relate to things or to people? Is your relationship a faith of love for people or not? And that, for John Wesley, separated the almost Christian from the true Christian. For John Wesley and for us, it's the question of Matthew chapter 25, that uh, judgment of the nations. You know the one about 
When did we see you, Lord? When you fed the hungry? When you clothed the naked? When you healed the sick? Visited the imprisoned? Then you saw the Christ. It requires a certain amount of self-realization. I believe Zacchaeus had that. Sitting in the tree, he realized in an instant what he was and what he could be. Tonight, at sundown, becomes, begins Yom Kippur, Judaism's, holy, Judaism's holiest night. It's a night of confession and reflection. And it's a night of prayer, of self-realization. Walter Brueggemann has this wonderful book, Prayers for a Privileged People. And I'm going to end this sermon by praying Walter's prayer called Yom Kippur. On this day, our Christian thoughts are turned to Jewish possibilities of forgiveness and reconciliation. On this day, we stand with them in covenant before you, before your Torah, amid a world torn asunder. Our thoughts are of death and destruction, of fragility and life under threat. We ponder cities mired in mud and mountains wrecked in quake. We notice melting ice and rising water. We live pandemics. We name places of violence far away and close to home. We tremble in our insecurity, afraid to be a victim, but now and then noticing that we are perpetrators. We finance and applaud the faraway violence, usually not naming the torn bodies or the forgotten children. We feel uneasy, but not frontally guilty, not until we face your thoughts that are remote from our thoughts. We imagine that you think in grief and disappointment over the mess we've made. We imagine that you shudder in dismay and anger over the violation of your good dream. We imagine that you are ready to abandon us. But we also imagine that your thoughts are interrupted by your own poets and prophets who line our newness, new exodus, new covenant, new forgiveness, new life. While we watch in our dis-ease, we hear Easter news again and your resolve of new beginning. And so we begin to move from sadness to joy, from hurt to dance, from enslavement to freedom. And then we wait again for your wonder to become visible in the world of empires and colonies, of mudslides and torrents, of fires and pandemics. We wait Come fully, come soon. Zacchaeus moved. We can move too. Amen.